Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com slash app to download. Hello, I'm Jennifer Palmieri here again with my co-host, former Senator Claire McCaskill. Welcome to another episode of How to Win 2024. We're taping the morning of Thursday, October 19th, and there's so much to catch you up on. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff to unpack here, uh, including the reasons why the president of the United States would go into a very dangerous neighborhood at this moment in time, his second to an active war zone in his presidency, and the fact that he feels the need to address the country in a primetime address tonight. We're lucky to have Jen Psaki here this morning to talk about why Biden felt like he had to go and how he is going to navigate this very tricky situation of a presidential campaign uh, while there are these incredible ground wars going on in various places across the world. And people may not know this about uh, Jen Psaki, but she's such a great person to talk to about this because she was not only the former White House press secretary, she was the State Department spokesperson under President Obama working for Secretary Kerry. And she was also the reelect spokesperson for President Obama in 2012. And she also worked at the DCCC. That's the campaign committee that helps uh, Democrats elect uh, members to the House representatives. And she was part of that team that won the House back in 2006 for the Democrats. <laughs> so just across the board, everything we want to talk about from how Democrats win the House back, how the president can win re-election, how foreign policy plays into politics, Saki is the end-all be-all expert. Uh, we'll also get into our winners and losers as House Republicans. Oh my God, continue continue to embarrass themselves as they continue to reject Trump ally Jim Jordan. Um, forever jacketless, Jim Jordan for speaker. Wait a minute. Did you say forever jacketless or forever a jackass? <laughs> Which is it? I think both yeah, apply. I think both, both apply. apply. But okay. Yeah, that's the forever hot mic, Claire McCaskill, to make that judgment. Okay. Then we're going to shine uh, a spotlight uh, on Donald Trump's own Law & Order episodes. Frankly, It could be a whole other series. You know, we've had a a number of different Law & Order series. We could have Law & Order, dun-dun, Trump. It it really is unbelievable what he's facing right now. And we're going to take a minute to shine the spotlight on all of the legal morass he faces as he is going to run for the president of the United States. Yeah, quick primer because there's just so much happening. But first, we're going to start with this week's winners and losers. Claire, you want to start with your big fail of the trail? Yeah, it's pretty obvious what the fail on the trail is. It is the far-right, extreme MAGA Republican Party. If you back up and look at what's happened here, it's, it's really unbelievable. A handful of members, crazy, extreme members who do, don't want to do anything other than tear the house down and not fund the government and not fund aid to Ukraine, they threw out a speaker. And then the Republicans got together and voted, and a guy won, Steve Scalise, to be the new speaker. He goes on the floor, doesn't get some of the crazy caucus to vote for him. So instead of giving him a chance to go round up the rest of the votes— They immediately kneecap him. 
And Jim Jordan and his allies and Donald Trump say, nope, you don't get another chance. You're done. We're never going to vote for you. End of discussion. We're not even going to talk to you. You're out of here. And then they turn to a guy who has never passed a bill. Jen, no, it's in amazing. 16 I know. years. I mean, Even think with about Republicans that. controlling the chamber for a lot of that time. I mean, what you have to do That's to pass a bill. That's not what he's bill, trying to do, right? Yeah, That's not what, yeah, he's what to you do. have to do to be a speaker is to listen and work with others. What you have to do to pass a bill is to listen and work with others. So it's a real good clue what a speaker he would be that he can't manage to get one piece of legislation across the finish line in 16 years. Um, To say nothing of the fact that he was probably the biggest player in terms of trying to stop the will of the American people around January 6th and the insurrection. And still to this day has not said out loud that Donald Trump lost that election. So it is frankly astounding to me that he got 199 votes yesterday. I think he's done though. Stick a fork in him and I don't think it's going to happen. And we are now in purgatory for a while, I think. And in terms of how it impacts 2024, I mean, first of all, they just can't govern. The Republicans, they have more members of Congress than the Democrats and they just are incapable of doing it. So it seems like there's more chaos. There's chaos on the world stage, chaos in politics. That's not awesome for House Dems or Biden, but the contrast of what Trump represents, what those MAGA Republicans represent in terms of uh, of chaos is a good contrast. And I think it does sort of show the limits of MAGAism, if you will, and that, I mean, you're right, it's all been about blowing things up. And then they show the limits of that because you can't actually get anything done if that's just what you're trying to do. So I think that there are larger electoral implications for the Republicans because it just shows the sort of nihilism of their strategy, which always has been to blow things up. I mean, Kevin McCarthy voted to overturn the election too, but he wasn't the ringleader trying to push the White House to do this the way Jim Jordan was. Yeah. Oh, he actually had a moment of sanity on January 6th and actually placed the blame where it should have been placed. McCarthy did. Um, mm-hmm. um, by the way, I think we will probably talk about this in future episodes also, but this is a real good case study for why the Democrats will win in 2024, because mm-hmm. we have 18 members of the Republican yes. caucus that won in districts that Biden won. 12 of them walked the plank twice to vote for Jordan. Yeah. Huge vote to be used against them next year because he embodies, it's not just the insurrection stuff. It's not just that he is not a leader. He's a destroyer, but it's also on abortion and gun safety and all of that. So the the six that voted against him, I think uh, made a much smarter political move in context of the win uh, next year in, in terms of them being able to hold on to their seats. Okay, so who was the winner? You you should do this because you have a surprising little-known winner. I wasn't even aware of this accomplishment with your former Senate colleagues. Yeah, and talking to, to senators this week, um, they are really on the precipice of a bipartisan deal to fund aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, aid to Taiwan, and more resources for the southern border. Those are the four pillars of the legislation they're working on. And by the way, can I also point out that one of the reasons this works better in the Senate is we have two women in charge of appropriations. (laughs) We have both Susan Collins and Patty Murray, who have worked together for years on appropriations. They are actively negotiating, actively coming up with a proposal that will pass the Senate with bipartisan support. And Chuck Schumer 
And the Democrats in the Senate are showing America how we lead, how our party leads. We actually work to find that common ground and to get things done rather than just do performative politics for viral moments to raise money and to tear down America. So uh, I think Chuck Schumer and the Senate Democrats win this week because the split screen shows who are the adults in the room. And, you know, some people may say, oh, but bipartisan wins, doesn't that help Republicans too? Because it normalizes them. It shows that they can work with Democrats and that they're not all crazy. And the answer is like, first of all, just getting things done is always better, particularly if you're in charge. But also Democrats, we are the ones that are trying to govern. We are the ones that win by showing that government can work, that it can react to the uh, needs of people, that it can work in a bipartisan way, that things can function again. We are on team function. They are team chaos. And so anytime Democrats are leading bipartisan coalitions, I think it's ultimately a win electorally as well. All right, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll be joined by someone who I have a lot in common with. We've held a lot of the same jobs in government and have often replaced each other in those roles. Jen Psaki, host of the new MSNBC primetime show, Inside with Jen Psaki, joins us next, so stay tuned. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Today's news requires more facts more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. We are back, and here with us is former White House Press Secretary and host of Inside with Jen Psaki, Jen Psaki. Hi, I'm so excited to be on with you two. (laughs) The best women power political expert podcast out there. I mean, how fun is this? So, Saki, in the intro before you came on, I was explaining that we have never actually worked together. I mean, we have never actually worked in the same office. (laughs) That is true. Which is kind of funny. We've been passing batons many times. Yeah. Baton passers. We were both on Kerry, but I was in Ohio and you were on the plane, right? You were on the Kerry campaign plane in 2004? Yes. I I, I mean, I think you're being generous with my role on the Kerry campaign. I I was... (laughs) I was like a a little person who was just doing whatever I was told. You were like a very important, impressive person in Ohio. Um, And I was traveling with the Carrie and the Heinz kids who were not kids. They were older than me, but uh, that was my job. It also included dealing with heartbreaks of boyfriends. It included sometimes when they had too much to drink and I had to get them out of the their oh rooms into events. So it included a lot of details beyond press, but it was a it was a great experience and I'm still big fans of theirs. Yeah, this is what campaigns are like. I mean, right, Claire, this is what campaigns are like. It's a lot of dealing with humans. And then um, you were at the DCCC when they won the House back in 2006, right? Democrats won the House back in 2006. Yes. And then you were Deputy White House Communications Director under Obama. I came in and replaced you. I remember meeting with you after I accepted the job and you're like, great, here's what you're walking into. <laughs> It's like, I was like, here's oh, 10 okay. binders. 
It's going to be great. Um, <laughs> that is right. And then do you remember there was a flag painting that we kept in our offices? I think one of us may have done it at an art event. It was not a beautiful piece of art, but it sat in the White House in that office, the communications director office for many years, uh, because we also yes. then baton passed on that when you went and worked on yes. uh, Secretary Clinton's campaign. And then when I left to go work on Hillary's campaign, Jen came back and took over as White House communications director. And so here we are now. Here we are. It's great to be here. So President Biden visited Israel this week. It was a second trip to an active war zone, most dangerous yet. You were the former State Department spokesperson also for Mm -hmm. President Obama. What do you think went into his decision to go? Did he have to go? You know, there's a lot of implications uh, on the global stage that he's worried about, but there's also implications back at home. That's right. I mean, first of all, I'm fairly certain he wanted to go and insisted on going. Um, And I know that because I was still there during the early days and early months of the war in Ukraine, and he wanted to go to Ukraine immediately. So um, given his long connection with Israel and his connection with the Jewish community, my suspicion is he wanted to go immediately. Um, It was a high wire act. I mean, it's over now, but it still is in terms of managing uh, what he did or didn't accomplish and what can come out of a trip like that. Obviously, the uh, Arab summit was canceled for a range of reasons. It seems like it might be back on. That's a good thing. But ultimately, I think he's a believer that you have to show up and be present. That's how he's approached his political life. And that's how he's kind of gone when there have been tragedies for the most part. Sometimes he hasn't gone uh, in the United States. And I think in this case, he felt like he needed to be there and show up, even though it was a high wire act. But yeah, there were security issues. Uh, There are also, of course, domestic issues and how people consume a trip like this, given that he is seen as a strong supporter of Israel, which he is, but there has certainly been blowback from the Muslim American community and others who feel that he has been one-sided. I don't think that's fair, but I also understand the concern. Let me ask you this. If you were there and advising him, should he spend more time tonight on the effort that he's making to get aid to Palestinians that are living in Gaza? Um, Should he spend more time on what they're doing behind the scenes? It's my understanding it is a lot of backdoor diplomacy going on, trying to get Egypt to um, open up the border to allow humanitarian aid through. It seemed to me that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it appeared that Blinken had gotten Egypt to say yes to letting the aid through, and then that door slammed shut again. Do you have any insight yeah. on on that as it relates to the politics of this and how Biden can can continue to straddle a very difficult fence? Yeah, one, I think, Claire, he does need to, and I expect he will. When he mm-hmm. uh, gave his remarks yesterday, one of the most interesting things I thought he said was where he kind of warned about the mistakes post 9-11. And what he was saying right. there was... We know what pain, what tragedy, what horror feels like in the United States. That is what you were experiencing in Israel. But don't allow that to let this become a situation where you make some of the mistakes we made. Different circumstances. But the challenge, of course, in the region is that if there are thousands of civilian casualties, if there is a growth of this conflict with Hezbollah, which is a proxy for Iran, this could turn into a global war. 
And that is something in the White House they're discussing right now in the national security team, in the situation room. So I would advise him to, to answer your first question, that he should, and I think he will. You can both support the Israeli people and what they have lived through, which is a horror akin to 9-11, and make sure Israel has um, replenishments for the Iron Dome, which presents missiles from coming in, and also what they need to fight this war, while also encouraging them to take into account civilian casualties and also providing aid and assistance to the Palestinian people, more than two million of which live in Gaza and have nowhere to go. So, okay, I just want to step back larger from, you know, how foreign policy plays a role in, in politics. Since we're both former communicators, I have to note with the trip yesterday, yeah. I mean, what they pulled off, Jen, first of all, going into the war zone. Yep. Second of all, as you're getting on Air Force One, by the way, the Arab summit has blown up. Yep. And so does it feel like you're walking into a trap now because you're only going to be with the Israelis? But the way they balanced mm-hmm. everything from his comments in front of Netanyahu talking about the Palestinian people, how they used Twitter slash X to have a picture of the president's Twitter account to say, here I am with Netanyahu. I had tough questions for my friend from Israel, so Mm -hmm. all of us can know that he also pushed back. Having the president go to the back of the plane last night and talk to reporters on the record, something he doesn't often Mm -hmm. do, and also then push back on the Israelis to say, if there are Palestinian casualties, you are going to be held accountable. And then coming back and saying, hey, I'm also going to have, you know, as the coup de grace, I'm going to have an Oval Office arrest on the next night. And navigating inaccurate reporting about the who was behind the bombing of the hospital, right? Which was also, I mean, it obviously contributed to the Arab summit being canceled, but also they were dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. And so just really balancing all the domestic political concerns as well about people being nervous about, you know, does this mean the U.S. is getting into war, being concerned about how this impacts innocent Palestinians, balanced all that. And still, the president doesn't get a lot of credit for any of this. Yeah. You know, he he managed to sort of resurrect NATO, which was in a state of not disrepair, maybe too strong of a word, but not in great shape when he took over to rally behind Ukraine. And now the way he's just dove headfirst into this conflict and Israel and, you know, between him and Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan just owned it and owned that space. When I worked for President Clinton and we had conflicts in Bosnia and Kosovo that initially weren't popular, his popularity approval rating would rise just because of a commander in chief Mm -hmm. sort of rebound. There was a CNBC poll that had uh, President Biden's approval rating, I think, at 37, Mm -hmm. which is the lowest or one of the lowest. It it just doesn't, you don't seem to get that credit anymore, commander in chief. What do you think about that? What do you make of the larger politics for him here? Well, I think the biggest opportunity they have here is less about foreign policy. I'm going to pull myself out of like the nerdy place I've lived in for years and more <laughs> about showing he's up to the job. Because as, as we all know, yep. one of the biggest challenges they have, and whenever people bring this up, it's like, do they know he's old? Yes, this they, they are aware of. <laughs> they are tracking. And it has been something that has popped in polls for years now. And when he went to Ukraine, one of the biggest opportunities or benefits from that was not that he was in Ukraine and supporting Zelensky. I mean, Zelensky is a very interesting international figure. The American public are not voting on Zelensky, right? But people would say in focus groups, wow, he had the stamina to go to Ukraine. And that's, I think, why they used 
money. And as we all know, one of the biggest tells of what people think work is what they spend money on in ads, right? Because that is a huge resource. In this case, it's obviously quite early. There's a lot of dynamics that could play, including with a range of demographics in our country that are hard to predict at this moment. But I do think him getting on the plane, going to Israel, reminding people of his experience and also his stamina, frankly, that's where there's value. I don't know what that's going to look like 13 months from now, but that is a big part of where there's value domestically. Yeah, pocket the leadership moments when you can. So turning to some of the other stuff that's going on, you you were a former (laughs) spokesperson. Yeah, right. In addition to being a spokesperson at the State Department and being in the White House as you were, you also have some experience at the DCCC. Yeah. So let's talk about 2024 and winning in 2024 Mm -hmm. and have the Republicans really gone around the bend to the point that if you were betting, you'd put money on the Democrats taking the House next year? Um, What I think is really interesting is how leader Hakeem Jeffries has played this. Now I want to know what you guys think, and I'll have to listen to the podcast to hear this, because it would be very easy if you're him to whack the heck out of every Republican at every moment. And he does that at times. But what he said the other day was, there are a number of Republicans who are qualified to be Speaker of the House, and Jim Jordan is not one of them. That's a very adult-in-the-room right. statement, which I think is, right. if you are vulnerable, and I mean, Claire, you have run and won in, in red state. You know, if you're vulnerable, that to me feels like a leader or a potential speaker that you can be comfortable being at the head of your party, right? He does pick his moments. I mean, he can be very spicy at times, but I think he's been playing this in a very interesting way. I do think that this whole argument, which the White House and certainly the DCCC has been running on to date, and obviously, as we all know, a lot can happen the next year of chaos versus competence, is sort of playing out without Democrats doing anything, right? A message that works because it's true. Yes, it works because (laughs) it's true. And- What's hard to know is if, you know, the rumor of Patrick McHenry, I don't know him, he's the speaker of time, if he is in that position for longer, if he's a little bit more sane, if they, I don't know what that means, right? But for now, it is playing out exactly how they could run effectively on it, I think. So I think would be helpful if you're a vulnerable Democrat or if you're a challenger, for sure. You know, you mentioned running from a red state. And what I keep thinking of during this week When our cycle was up, you know, we elected folks. We elected John Tester in Montana. This was in 2006. You remember the year well. I won in Missouri. Jared Brown won in Ohio. You know, it's a cycle for Joe Manchin also. He wasn't there in 2006. But what I remember is the leader of the Democrats at the time, Harry Reid, once we were in office, whenever there was going to be a tough vote, He always circled around and wanted to give us room to do what we needed to do. He always understood that if we voted lockstep with some of the more liberal members of our party, we were going to get in trouble in our reelect. And it was all about protecting Mm -hmm. the majority. 
What really is astounding to me is that that doesn't appear to even be in the thought process of MAGA. It's like they have checked out of the reality that what they're doing is losing the majority with every stalled speaker vote, with every insistence that they vote again, making these people in Biden districts walk the plank over and over and over again on votes that they are not going to be popular with at home. It is fascinating to me. I mean, do you have any take on that? Do they just not realize that they're eating their young as we speak? I I mean, first of all, a Jim Jordan speakership, which does not appear to be happening, would be bad for America and good for a Hakeem Jeffries speakership. You know, I mean, because that's a guy you would literally run against, which I can't understand why they don't all understand or they don't recognize. The DCCC said in their talking points the other day that they would make sure a vote for Jordan was a career-ending move for every battleground Republican. Well, I mean, (laughs) it's not just that this is a person who supports, you know, policies you may disagree with as a Democrat. He literally is a defender of Donald Trump and a defender of the insurrectionists. You know, it feels like they don't understand that they could lose the majority. That's what it feels like to me, that that is not in their minds, that it doesn't seem possible to them. And it is possible. It doesn't take that many votes. Yeah. And it just takes people, as we all know, having a feeling, right? A feeling like this feels out of control. This feels like my member is not representing me. And it's easy to see how people who aren't even political Looney Tunes like all of us could feel that in this moment about what they're seeing. (laughs) It feels to me like when either party wins back the Congress, it's because there's an overriding political dynamic. And for you all in 2006, it was the Iraq war and it was opposition to the Iraq war. And then now it feels like maybe looming even larger is just the fear of MAGA extremism. That's like the dynamic that just shapes everything. It was also culture of corruption in 2006, which has a ring to it, you know, I mean, because... of all sorts Tom of cover-ups and, and craziness happening with Republican House members at that time. So, yeah, you're right. It, it is. It, no shortage of that. This time you're right. Either. It's sort of like history can repeat itself. It is hard to understand why they don't recognize they could lose the majority and be in a very different political place. Or they don't care or they just realize they can't. They don't know how yeah. to govern and they want to be in the opposition. That's what they're built for. They're not built for governing. Saki, thank, thank you, so you guys so much. I'll be looking forward to listening, hearing what you tell me about <laughs> yeah, Jim and- Jordan. <laughs> and we do want to tell you that this is not your last rodeo with us. Oh, yeah. We will need you back. We need you. I mean, you and Karnacki are like our two go-tos on how to win in 2024. I love when- it. Thank <laughs> you, guys. Right. I got love listening. Thank you, guys. It's good to talk to you. So when we come back, we're going to talk about the spotlight this week and how Trump is living a Law and Order series in his life right now. We'll be right back. It's a new year, but it's the same old, no law, just vibe Supreme Court. I'm Melissa Murray. I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And we are the hosts of the Strict Scrutiny podcast on Crooked Media, who also happen to be constitutional law professors in our free time. Join us each week as we unpack what's on the docket for the Supreme Court term and break down the latest headlines while still managing a laugh or two. So whether you're a lawyer, a law student, or just trying to make sense of what these cases mean, Strict Scrutiny has got you covered. New episodes out every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for some bad decisions.
Welcome back. This week, we're turning our spotlight on Donald Trump, who spent most of the week trapped in a real-life episode of Law & Order. Actually, sort of like multiple franchises of Law & Order. He spent several days in court for his civil fraud trial in New York City. Then on Tuesday, he was interviewed under oath in a lawsuit filed by the ex-FBI officials Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. That's a whole different case. And on Friday, jury selection begins for his co-defendant in the Georgia election interference trial. And it seems like it's finally getting to Trump. I mean, you kind of see this on the campaign trail. You know, some Republican candidates I spoke to last week off the record said they thought that the trial was getting to him and maybe why he has been even more unhinged on the campaign trail, talking about Hezbollah being smart as an example. But it doesn't seem that his supporters care. And some even say that they would back him as president from prison. I've talked to folks like that. Question is, how do Joe Biden and Trump's GOP rivals handle this? Well, I I don't think they're going to have to handle anything. I think it's going to be plain as the nose on your face. Um, And by the way, we are just learning just this minute that Sidney Powell has pled guilty in the Georgia election case. The clown who paraded herself as a lawyer. So that probably means that she's cooperating with the prosecution because you don't get probation if you don't cooperate. And I think it's important for us to back up just for a second and really make sure people understand how all-encompassing these legal problems are going to be at every step of this campaign. He is charged with illegal criminal conduct before the presidency, during the presidency, and after the presidency. And just look at the first two cases that actually have trial dates. One is January 15th. That is not a criminal case. That will be the money trial for the defamation suit by Gene Carroll. So that will be where they will decide how much money he owes Gene Carroll. That is the same day as the Iowa caucuses, January 15th. Then fast forward, his first criminal trial, which will be the election interference that is going to be held in D.C., that starts on March 4th. That is the day before Super Tuesday. So all of the headlines around the two most important dates in the primary schedule are going to be dominated by this morass of legal issues he's facing. And I just, I can't imagine, I mean, having been in presidential campaigns, Jen, you know. know how hard it is. Now, imagine having to navigate jury selection and the press surrounding this stuff. And I guess more people are going to flip in Georgia. We still don't have trial dates for the New York criminal case, which is the porn star hush money, and the Georgia criminal case, which is election interference. But we do know that the documents case is going to occur sometime after May. I mean, probably the documents case will occur in August, which is when the conventions and all the nominating stuff is. And it's just a mere 60, 90 days from the election. So I don't think we can take our eye off the spotlight that there's really two things going on next year. One is electing a president and one is the process by which a president goes to prison. (laughs) I mean, when you put it, yeah, when you put it that starkly. So there is the Eugene Carroll case, there is Letitia James case, the civil case in New York City. There's the election case in D.C. The classified documents case is out of Florida. And then there is the Georgia RICO case. So, I mean, 
I don't know of other defendants that have had to face that kind of span of trials, let alone a presidential candidate. I know what he will do, though. He will make those trials his campaign stops. Instead of being in Super Tuesday states, he'll be in the courtroom and he'll come on afterwards and talk about how this he's being persecuted because he's the only person that can beat Biden. And what we've seen so far is Republicans rally to his side. There's two big questions that have overhang this. At some point, is there a straw that breaks the camel's back where people see all of these cases on the Republican side in March and say, this guy cannot win, and somehow Nikki Haley becomes their nominee because she's emerged as the person who's number two after Iowa and New Hampshire. I think that's a long shot. I don't know, Claire, what you think about that. And then the other question is, you know, I believe that seeing these trials, the evidence that comes out, independent voters are going to be all the more turned off by him. That's what I see as two big questions with these trials. I think if these cases were televised, if you had the case that's going to occur right before Super Tuesday, that's a federal case. It won't be on TV. So it will still be more of the same to the MAGA world. You know, they're just going after him because he's got our back. We're going to yeah. have his back. I think the more interesting thing to watch is going to be two things, jury selection and how difficult it is to get juries that can just look at the evidence and be fair. And the second thing is how many of the co-defendants actually testify against him. Um, we're watching them line up MAGA folks to walk the plank in Congress for Jim Jordan. Yeah. But it appears that some of his co-defendants aren't willing to walk into prison on his behalf. That's why people plead. They plead to avoid prison. And the only reason a prosecutor takes a plea is to help get a bigger fish into prison. So how many of these co-defendants in Georgia will do what Sidney Powell has done? Watch that carefully, and uh, we will continue to monitor it on your behalf, because this <laughs> is a spotlight that is going to glare for months on end. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with much more. And if you have questions for us, whether it is about the 2024 race, our own personal experience in politics, you can send it to howtowinquestions at NBCUNI.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 646-974-4194. And we might answer it on the pod. The senior producer for this show is Alicia Conley. Jessica Schrecker is a segment producer. Our technical director is Bryson Barnes. Paul Robert Monsey and Cedric Wilson are our audio engineers. Jamaris Perez is the associate producer. Aisha Turner is the executive producer for MSNBC Audio. And Rebecca Cutler is the senior vice president for content strategy at MSNBC. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts and follow the series. Go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Visit msnbc.com app to download.